0: Uh, Let's begin. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you, we thank you, we thank you for many things. (laughs) We ask your blessing on our efforts in trying to understand not only the purpose and the reasons behind the Babylonian exile, but what we can learn from it and apply it to ourselves today, because there is so much... Uh, that we can learn. So help us then to truly understand all of it and get really the points that you want us to understand. So we thank you for this time together, and we thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name. Amen. There's a lot of comments I'd like to make about last night, but I think... Uh, we are all very much relieved. Uh, so uh, let's leave let's leave it at that. All right. The Babylonian captivity, I think, is an extremely important uh period of Jewish history, but it is not just for the Jewish people. Uh it is something that we should learn because many of the <clears throat> reasons that uh, uh, lie behind the cause for the exile uh, apply to us just as much today as it did then, and that is the people's desire to do their own thing. Putting in very plain, common day language, uh, yes, Lord, we'll do this, we'll do that, we'll do so forth, but we're going to do it our way and on our time, and we'll just leave it at that. Rather than trying to understand what is God's will for us, they did everything as a nation. There was very little in the way of uh, personal relationship, almost nothing in the way of personal relationship between the individual person and God in the time. Uh, that we are talking about here in in ancient Jewish history, and that is not what God wanted. God has always wanted a personal relationship with each one of us, so that our actions on a day to day basis should be not just through the church, but and I say not just through the church because it should be partially. Through the church. The church wants to help us. But it should be. A one on one. Relationship. With God. You should get to know him. Uh, and allow him to know you. Uh, there are several. Uh, <coughs> passages in the New Testament. For example. You all know the story of the. Uh, the wedding feast. Where you had five. Uh, wise virgins and, and five uh, who didn't. Uh, I, 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 I'm trying. I, I'm trying to be polite here. Uh, anyways, who, who weren't prepared. Let's put it that way. Uh, and you, well, you all know that story there. And that was put in the context of a wedding feast at that particular time, where the groom was the more important person. And when the groom uh, finally came, the door was locked, which was uh, not unusual at that time, and no one was allowed in after that. Well, the foolish virgins that had gone off uh, to get oil for their lamps and finally came back and wanted to get in. And the words that Jesus used in this parable, now, this is a story, not history. Uh, but the parable, the words that Jesus used, is used intentionally. It says, go, go away, I don't know you. The context of that story is being prepared in accordance with the way God wants you to be prepared. And that requires a relationship of how, what does God want of you as an individual? And apparently these five foolish virgins who were not prepared did not have that kind of a relationship. And so uh, the groom in this story says, be gone, I don't know you. And that can be frightening, because if we, as an individual, go up to heaven after our death for what they call the particular judgment, that is the individual judgment of each one of us, and God says, I don't know you, you've never let me into your life, you've never opened your heart to me. I don't know who you are, so why should I let you in? Wouldn't that be pretty darn frightening? And that's what heaven and hell are all about. Hell is not the fire and the brimstone and the little guy out there with the the horns and the red uh, union suit and the uh, tail and the pitchfork. You know, that's all foolishness for children. When we are judged on an individual basis, we will see the face of God. And the face of God is enough to fulfill us with all earthly desires. And <clears throat> the automatic no need for anything else. But if he sends us you know, into eternal damnation, all that might be is nothing else has changed except they will never see that face again. And that in itself would set up an anxiety within the individual, a personal hatred of self because you didn't do something that was asked of you. You've never had a relationship with God, and that in itself would be its own hell. Nothing else might change. We don't know. But I want to, don't want to dwell on the negative and, and, you know, all of the gloom and doom stuff. The people of Judah and Jerusalem in the seventh century BC, uh, we're very much of that I don't care attitude. And there's some other things far and more important than God. Oh yeah, on the Sabbath we go and we do our thing, uh, but the rest of the time we do what we want. And they had the attitude that God was in the temple. Yep, we admit that. God was in the temple and we go there on the Sabbath and we do what we have to do but when we're out here in our own homes workplaces etc god is not there and i'm not, i'm going to do what i want to do well that's not the way it should be that's not the way it should be we know if you've read uh second book of kings that the assyrians that is the northern part uh of israel at the time the actually the the nation of Israel, because it was split in in two by the 7th century uh, B.C., was overrun by the Assyrians and all of the people from the north were taken off to Syria. Now that doesn't mean that they were killed or died. They probably died out in time, yes. But... Uh, there wasn't any wholesale slaughter. That's not the way slavery was handled in those days. All right? But we never saw them again. They never returned. In their place, the Assyrian king, Sinatra, transferred all of the people that he didn't want in his uh, country into Israel into the northern part of Israel, around Shechem and in the province of Samaria. And they became the Samaritans that were so hated by the people at the time of Jesus Christ. Because they were not Jews, although they tried to assimilate. They were foreigners. They only tried to pick up some of the Uh, Jewish beliefs but they retained their own so they were uh, half and half you might say and the same thing happened in the southern part of uh, Israel uh, in the 6th and 7th century early part of the 7th century Uh, Nebuchadnezzar Came to overrun, uh, Israel in 597 BC. He didn't quite complete the, the, uh, capture, but he did take some of the people, uh, to Babylon. He finished the job ten years later in 587 BC. And when I say that he took everybody to Babylon, it wasn't that he, uh, you know, brought a trainload of of uh, cars and so forth and packed everybody and their belongings up. No. He took only the people that could do him some good. The teachers, the craftsmen, uh, strong men who could work in the fields and so forth and so on. Uh, the lame, the sick, little children, uh, real elderly people, they were left behind. But if, look at it: what happened to Israel in that time period. If all of the well-bodied, able people were taken out, who was left to take care of the few people that were left behind? Virtually no one. And so, when they finally returned after 48 years, that was a, another major blow because they returned to virtually nothing. There was no city of Jerusalem, there was no temple, there was nothing. But I, that'll we'll talk more about that next week. What I really want to talk about is what happened in the Jerusalem in the Babylon during that 48 years, beginning in 597 BC down to 539. Uh, BC it was a tumultuous period of time and I would like to read just a little bit uh, from the second book of Kings uh, to to really give you um, an idea of Why they got there in the first place. Because they took this commitment that God made to them in the covenant of protection and they took it far too personally without ignoring the consequences of not doing their part. Remember the covenant that was made way back with Abraham and renewed with Moses and King David and down through the ages uh, was descendants which certainly happened was land which was promised land and protection and in many ways God fulfilled his side of that covenant, that agreement by protecting his people over and over and over again but there's a limit to what God is going to take. All right. And we know what those limits are. Very clear. And the Jewish people, both in the north and again in the south 130 years later, neglected to keep their side of the story. They had no idea of why God would let this happen. Why he would allow the Babylonians to come in and conquer Israel and destroy the temple and destroy the city of, of Jerusalem and all of the infrastructure, etc., and cart them off. Why would that happen when you pro- promised us protection, Lord? Let's go and read from chapter 21 uh, in Kings. Then the Lord spoke through his servants the prophets. Remember the prophets were brought in way back beginning in the 9th century BC to try to stem the evil of the kings. And we're talking solely about the rulers and the major leaders within Judaism because you can't blame the people they were not Uh, educated enough not that they were ignorant or dumb Uh, they just were not educated well enough to understand so they had to follow the leaders says then the Lord spoke through his servants the prophets because Manasseh king of Judah has practiced these abominations and has done greater evil than all that was done by the Amorites before him and has led Judah into sin by his idols Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I will bring such evil on Jerusalem and Judah that whenever anyone hears of it, his ears shall ring. I will measure Jerusalem with the same cord as I did Samaria, and with the plummet, and with the plummet I used for the house of Ahab that was in the northern kingdom uh, earlier. I will wipe Jerusalem clean as one wipes a dish, wiping it inside and out. I will cast off the survivors of my inheritance and deliver them into the enemy hands to become a prey and a booty for all of their enemies because they have done evil in my sight and provoked me from the day their fathers came forth from Egypt until today. All of that time period, after they came back from Jerusalem, instead of being grateful to the Lord and showing it through fidelity and obedience, they sinned even greater. They admired the nations around them. And that was why they wanted a king in the first place. God said, I am your king. And they said, yeah, but we want a king that can rule over us like the other nations. And God said, all right, but you got to understand the consequences of having a king. And you can see if you read uh, particularly the second book of Kings, uh, how evil most of those kings were. There were a few good ones in the south, not so much in the north, but in the south. You had Hezekiah and Josiah who tried very hard To turn things around, but the people were too strong for them and they did not succeed. So the people landed in Judah. I mean, I'm sorry. The people landed in Babylon. They had to trek, I don't know how many miles it is, but it's roughly a thousand miles, give or take a little. Uh, and of course, that would have required walking. That was the only way they could do that. Uh, and they were settled there. Uh, we have no idea how and why uh, or, or what they went through. There is virtually no writing of record of how things w- were actually accomplished. How did they get there and what happened when they did get there? If you have a hundred thousand people, you know, not the millions and so forth that, uh, the Bible scriptures often use, but just take a hundred thousand people, and invade a small country at one time. Where are they going to eat and sleep and uh, take care of themselves in all the ways you, you would imagine? Uh, there is no history as to, uh, what this was all about, or how they, they just kept whining and crying, why are you letting this happen, Lord? Why are you doing this to us? It took them several years to understand uh, that it was their own sin, their own abandoning God, rather than God abandoning them. It's unfortunate, very unfortunate, but it did happen. Now, how did it happen? Through the prophet, well, through uh, three of the prophets, the main or uh, the primary uh, prophets: uh, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Jeremiah. Now, Jeremiah never went uh, to Babylon. Jeremiah stayed home and hope. <laughs> Jeremiah stayed in Israel and tried to change or serve the people that remained there. He got run out, run out of town, so to speak, run out of Dodge, uh, and was run all the way to Egypt, where he died. Ezekiel was taken to Babylon in the first uh, conquering, or attempt at conquering, in 597 BC and established himself as a holy man uh, of importance, and the people uh, eventually, not right away, but eventually began to listen to him. We have Isaiah, who tried earlier to get the people to see that they were doing wrong in many ways, uh, but they did not... uh, pay any attention to him, and eventually Isaiah of Jerusalem was martyred. There was another Isaiah who did come out of Babylon and he spent a great deal of time trying to console the people once they finally woke up to why they were there in the first place. Now let's spend a little time on how and through what means did they wake up we had talked about the book of Deuteronomy earlier. The book of Deuteronomy had been written by some small group in the northern uh, nation of Israel, back around the 7th century, 8th century, uh, more like the 8th century BC, but it was not accepted there. And when Uh, The Assyrians overran the northern kingdom. Uh, This small group called the Deuteronomists went to southern, the southern kingdom of Judah and took the book of Deuteronomy with them. It wasn't accepted there either because the people were interested in doing their own thing. And so they didn't like what was happening. But the book sort of landed... Mysteriously, obviously through God's help, in the temple. And during the time of Josiah, the king, one of the kings that tried to do things well, it was mysteriously found. And when Josiah read it, he tore his garments. Remember we had talked about that out of frustration. He tore his garments as, as a sign of extreme frustration and wanted the people to finally wake up and listen. And he read this and he had it read to the people. Uh, and uh, they still ignored it. And of course, by ignoring it, that is what actually landed them in Babylon eventually. But some wise person, we don't know who for sure, took the book of the, uh, Deuteronomy to Babylon with him. And after a while, they started small little home study groups, which means that they couldn't have been slaves in the traditional way of slavery that we often think about it. Uh, they started small home study groups. All right, because this was the only activity they had, and this was the only document that they had that was of interest. And finally, they begin to wake up. Now, these small study groups became the beginning or the origin of the synagogue system. A synagogue, even today, technically is supposed to be a house of prayer and study. It is not a temple. It is not a place of worship. But yet, that uh, has been blurred. You might say the difference between a synagogue and a temple has really been blurred uh, by the Jewish people today. And they sort of combine both of them and it becomes a, a house of worship. Because that's all they have. They do not have a temple that was destroyed by the Romans in 70 A.D., never to be rebuilt again. Remember, it was King David who made the center of Jerusalem worship. Uh, excuse me. He made the center of Jewish worship in the city of Jerusalem only. That's the only place where uh, animal sacrifice could be uh, done uh correctly. Legally, so to speak, in their understanding. Um, Before that, you had sacrifices done all over the place, but um, they got out of hand. They were not done by the proper people or in the proper way. So it was King David who made Jerusalem the center of Jewish worship. But when that was destroyed in 70 A.D., then they had no other place. Or when it was destroyed, when the temple was destroyed by the Babylonians in the 6th century, they did not have a place of worship. So they began these little houses of prayer, which eventually grew into the synagogue system. And when they they were finally released, uh, in 539 B.C., uh, they took the system back with them because, remember, their temple was still destroyed. Now, we'll get into the return and the restoration of Israel next week. It's an interesting period of history. But there's a lot of things I want to talk about uh, that happened in Babylon during this time period. I would think so. I I really don't know. I can't give you a definite answer. But it it would sound logical. That uh, they would uh, look upon this. As we would say Sunday school. Yeah. They would say the shul. uh, Which would be. What they were doing. In the synagogue. Yeah. Synagogues as I said. Are houses of worship. I mean, I'm sorry, not worship. Houses of study and prayer. But remember, the Jewish people were never taught to pray on an individual basis. It was always in groups or in the temple. And in most cases, that's where the Psalms came from because they would write a special program uh, for various important occasions. And if you look at the psalms right at the top in most uh, Bibles, it'll say a uh, psalm of ascent, or a psalm of mercy, or a psalm of petition, that kind of thing. The psalms are divided into seven different groups. Interestingly enough, there are only seven psalms of petition, uh, in other words uh, of asking for mercy or forgiveness so out of 150 that's rather small uh, most of the psalms are either glorifying God in a rather formal way or they are psalms of petition which I call gimme prayers Lord gimme this, gimme that gimme something else you know and uh, <laughs> It's interesting that the only time they think about God, and unfortunately Christians today, the only time we think about God is when we want something. Something either physical or some, uh, miracle to happen, you know. Take my 98 year old mother and allow her to be healthy so she can get back on her roller skates. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard some rather unusual uh, prayer requests in my day. Yes. Um, and, uh, I just want about the worship, the house of worship versus the house of prayer. Don't we, as Christians, consider prayer as a form of worship? Yes. So do they have a different uh, idea of what prayer was? Because if they, if they worship like that, uh, that's the worst thing, and this is praying. They have a different idea of what they really didn't have the same understanding of worship as we do today. You know, look at it this way, and somebody offered this analogy uh, not too long ago, and I think it's a good one. Think of how the British today honor their king or their queen. You know, with great deal of formality, interest, um, joy. You know, they they all love it, but there's no personal relationship. That's the way the Jewish people related to God at that time. So would prayer kind of be more like a duty relationship? Yes, right. That's like a chore. So yeah, a chore. Right. (laughs) Something they had to do. Right. yeah, they did, and, you know, with a lot of formality, but it didn't come from the heart. It didn't come from the heart and the mind. As I've said so many, many times, sin is more in the mind and the heart than it is in the action. But conversely, our worship and our adoration has to come from the mind and the heart. Otherwise, it's just formality. But out of this whole idea of the synagogue system in, in Babylon at this particular time, the Jewish people finally begin to realize why they were there. And, oh my God, all of a sudden, the whining and the crying and all of that, but they didn't understand and who could have been wrong so what happens the priest the few priests that were carted off to Babylon along with the people began to take advantage of this idea, this turnaround in mind and heart and the priestly class actually became the ruling class of the Jewish people at that time. Because remember, the king was put out of business. They were exiles in a foreign country. So they had no government. They had no ruling. So the priest and the priestly class were starting in these small home study groups, which became the synagogues, Took advantage of this, and rightly so. No, I'm not criticizing. They took advantage of this to actually get the people to understand through the teachings that came from the Book of Deuteronomy, and they started turning around. And by the time they were ready to leave Babylon, it was they were going to go home and They were going to do this and they were going to do that and they were going to study and they were going to worship the Lord and they were going to rebuild the temple. The only bad feature is they went to the total opposite extreme. They virtually worshipped doing what the book of Deuteronomy said they had to do. And unfortunately, that was reinforced As they got out of Babylon, when the Talmud began to be developed verbally, not written down, but verbally. The Talmud is far more important to most Jewish people today than the Old Testament. Because the Talmud tells them exactly what they have to do and how far they can go to do it. Or how far they must go to do it. Alright, for example, my wife used to tell me that they had a Jewish family that lived across the street from them. And every Sunday, the lady of the house from the Jewish family would come over and ask my wife or one of her sisters if they would come over and light the fire in their wood stove uh, so that she could cook dinner because... The Talmud told them that they could not light the fire on the Sabbath. Yeah. So, when you get down to that minute extreme, you're losing sight of the purpose, of what is the intention. Now, God's not going to slap anybody on the wrist because he lit a fire on the Sabbath, or on Sunday, as we call it. God is more interested in what is your mind in your mind and your heart. And we have to wake up to make sure that we are not doing the same thing that the Jewish people do or did, and probably still do. Do we go to church on Sunday simply to fulfill an obligation? I remember one time when I was teaching a different subject, but I said something to the way that we, yes, going to Mass on Sunday is extremely important because it helps us to fulfill the commandment that says worship God on the Sabbath. But he wants us to worship him from the heart. And I was saying somebody, uh, or to a group of people such as this, that if you were backing out of your driveway on a Sunday to, tend, to attend the 5 o'clock, you know, 5 p.m. mass, and one of your neighbors comes down and says, hey, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, can you help me? I'm, you know, my child is choking or something, and I need your help. And you say, oh no, I've got to go to the mass on Sunday. No. <laughs> See, it just doesn't make sense. Now that's an extreme case, I'm, I'm sure. But nevertheless, there are times when charity overrides formality. Or should override formality. And that's probably different for each one of us. But there's, you know, we should give it some thought. We should give our relationship with God a lot of thought. First of all, each of us has a small part to play in God's plan of salvation. I haven't talked much about that in the last few sessions, but it's still there. God has a plan, and we're going to talk a lot about that next week, because it fits in. It fits into the subject matter for next week, which is our last week. Um, each one of us has a part to play. St. Paul tells us in uh, his letter to the Colossians, I make up in my own body what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. And when I first read that, I said, what could be lacking in the sufferings of Christ? Those were infinite. Yeah, they were. But, in God's plan of salvation, it leaves the door open for each one of us to play a small part. If any of you and, and whoever uh, are of you, are you among this group have been supervisors in the business world, haven't you found out that when you get your employers, or employees rather, together to do a project, If each one of them has a part to play and a voice to be heard, it becomes much easier than if you just assign, you know, portions of, uh, say, do this because this is the way I want, you know. It's important that you each have a part to play. And God figures the same way with his plan of salvation. And that's what Paul means when he says I make up in my body what is lacking. Well, it isn't that Jesus was missing something in his passion, death, and resurrection. It means that in that plan, in God's plan, which of course that was the most important event, but each one of us has a small part to play. And It is up to us to constantly question God for an understanding of what is our part in that overall plan. I feel that my teaching here is my part and God has blessed that I've been doing this now for almost 40 years. How much longer, I don't know. (laughs) <laughs> I do it much longer you're going to have to prop me up <laughs> but I, and I enjoy doing it. it when you do it out of love for God and, and God honors you with his love and he has in so many ways it becomes a joy it really becomes a joy I've had a number, i was just thinking the other day, I was looking at a family picture and that was taken five or six years ago. And there have been five members of my family that, that have passed away in that time period. Uh, but, and I've had a number of, of sad things happen in my life, but yet at the same time I've had so much good happen that it balances. And I feel that God is with me, helping me along. There's days when I really have to kind of force myself to get here. <laughs> but the moment I start, it is like God taking over. And much of what I say uh, was not prepared. It just comes out. Uh, but that's because I'm Fulfilling what I feel is my little portion of God's plan of salvation. And I enjoy doing it. Yes, match. Uh, well, now, I had a death in my family, somebody very dear. But if you have God, you just keep going on. Amen. Yes. You keep going on. Right. Because that is part of life. Yeah. The thing is, what you're hoping is that your loved ones that have gone before you, we're prepared in the same way. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. And I feel that in my case and I hope in yours that if God called me on the way home from here today uh, and I mean his home not mine <laughs> uh, I would be at peace because i fulfilled what well, he's asked of me up to this point in time. What is in front of me from now till the end. I have no idea, but that's alright. I'm willing to be open to it. And that's what I'm trying to get you all to see. That if you have a personal relationship with Christ, and you develop that through prayer, that's the only way it's going to happen. That you spend time in prayer, opening your mind and your heart to what he wants of you, and then you accept that and fulfill it, all of those requirements, God is going to be there to help you. Now, What happened with the Jewish people is really interesting in a way, uh, because they went there whining and crying, and if you read <clears throat> some of the passages and I'd like to have uh, I'd like to read Yes this is uh, I'm going to be reading from Daniel chapter 3 The book of Daniel was written in the 2nd century BC long after the Babylonian exile ended and I'll talk a little bit more about this next week. But the book of Daniel was written as, uh, I always think of the Saturday Evening Post. You know, there used to be stories in the Saturday Evening Post that would be related, but not uh, just a continuation of the same story. They'd be related in some way. And that's the way Daniel is. I'm going to be reading from chapter 3. says, Blessed are you and praiseworthy, O Lord, the God of our fathers, and glorious forever is your name. See, their prayers started out very flowery, and, and you would think, well, oh, these are very holy people. Well, not always. Okay. For you are just in all you have done. All your deeds are faultless. All your ways are right. And all your judgments proper. You have executed proper judgments in all that you have brought upon us and upon Jerusalem, the holy city of our fathers, which has now been destroyed. By a proper judgment you have done all of this because of our sins. For we have sinned and transgressed by departing from you, and we have done every kind of evil. Your commandments we have not heeded or observed. Nor have we done as you ordered us for our own good. Therefore, all you have brought upon us, all you have done to us, you have done by a proper judgment. You have handed uh, us over to our enemies, lawless and hateful rebels, to an unjust king, the worst of all the world, the worst in all the world. Now we cannot open our mouths. We, your servants who revere you, have become a shame and a reproach. For your name's sake, do not deliver us up forever, or make void your covenant. Do not take away your mercy from us, for the sake of Abraham, your beloved, and Isaac, your servant, and Israel, your holy one, to whom you promised to multiply their offspring like the stars of heaven, For the sand on the shore of the sea. For we are reduced. O Lord. Beyond any other nation. Brought low everywhere in the world. This day because of our sins. We have in our day now. No prince or prophet. Or leader. No holocaust or sacrifice. Oblation or incense. No place to offer first fruits. To find favor with you. But. With a contrite heart. And a humble spirit. Let us be received as though it were holocausts of rams and bullocks or thousands of fat lambs. So let our sacrifice now be in your presence today as we follow you on reservedly, For those who trust in you cannot be put to shame. And now we follow you with our whole heart. We fear you and we pray to you. Do not let us be put to shame. But deal with us in your kindness and great mercy. This is a person who finally has awakened to what God really wants and what they have lost by their own sins. Uh, Now, this was written in the second century. It was a reflection back on the incidents of Babylon whole story, the whole book of Daniel, is put in the context of the exiles in Babylon because they were going through somewhat the same kind of things after the Greeks had conquered the Persians and had tried to conquer the people of Israel, or Judah I should say, because Israel no longer existed at that time. Uh, we'll talk a little more about this uh, and also the book 1st uh, and 2nd Maccabees but we'll talk about that next week but this passage here from Daniel chapter 3 reflects the thought pattern of the people who finally started to wake up in Babylon Okay, you have some more passages if you go to uh, Psalm 1 Thirty-nine, I believe it is. No, it's Psalm 138. Uh, 137, let's go to 137. It says, By the rivers of Babylon we sat moaning and weeping when we remembered Zion. Now, this is written after they returned to Israel or Judah. But it's a reflection on the period there. By the rivers of Babylon we sat moaning and weeping when we remembered Zion. <clears throat> On the poplars that le- uh, of that land we hung up our harps. There our captors asked us for the words of a song. Our tormentors for a joyful song. Sing for us, O, oh, a song of Zion. But how could, how could we sing a song Of the Lord. In a foreign land. If I forget you Jerusalem. May my right hand wither. May my tongue stick to my palate. If I do not remember you. And if I do not exalt Jerusalem. Beyond all my delights. Remember Lord. Against Edom. At uh, at Jerusalem. They said. Level it. Level it. Down to its foundations. Fair Babylon. You destroyer happy those who pay you back the evil you have done on us. Happy are those who seize your children and smash them against the rock. Wow, pretty sad in a way, is it not? If you go to 126, this is a song that was written again After the exile ended. But it's a reflection back on that time period. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion. Then he thought. Then we thought. We were dreaming. Our mouths were filled with laughter. Our tongues sang for joy. Then it was said among the nations. The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us indeed. How happy we were. Restore again our fortunes, Lord, like the dry, streams bed, dry, dry stream beds of the Negev. Those who sow in tears will reap with cries of joy. And those who go forth weeping, carrying sacks of seed, will return with cries of joy, carrying their bundled sheaves. In other words, they went out as captives from Judah to Babylon weeping and crying because they were captives and to be slaves, but they returned. Now, the return uh, from Babylon was an, is an interesting thing too because it came about after the Persians had conquered the Babylonians in 539 B.C. And Cyrus, the king of Persia, was of a, a to- totally different mindset than Nebuchadnezzar. And he realized that the Jewish people were not happy there, and if you don't have happy people, you're not going to get as much out of them as uh, is possible and as you would like if they were doing things under their own free will. So he allowed the people to go back to Judah. Remember, this was the province that was left, Judah and the small portion of Dan. Uh, And so whenever the Babylonians or the Persians referred to the Israelites' homeland, they referred to it as Judah. And the inhabitants were Judahites. And so the term Judahites was used for a short period of time and then eventually shortened to Jew. That's how the word Jew came about. You will not find the word Jew in any of the books of the Old Testament because they were all written before that word became popular. And it was sort of a short version of Judah, right, and Judahites there. So it's interesting that uh, it is used very commonly in the New Testament, particularly in the Gospel, but in the Old Testament, uh, it is not used at all. The people there are referred to either Judahites or Hebrews or Israelites, all meaning essentially the same thing. Today, we differentiate between the country the nationality and the religion or the country the language and the religion and that is Israeli for the country Hebrew for the language and Jew or Judah Jewish uh, for their faith any questions so far yes Rita that's a good point Rita just asked uh, we mentioned the priests uh, but where did the word rabbi come from that did not come into common usage until around the second or third century AD when the Talmud was beginning to be put together in writing it never really got into writing in a formal way, as it is today, almost up until the 12th century AD, under Moses Maimonides. I never can pronounce you right. Maimonides. Okay. Uh, but Rabbi, the word Rabbi means teacher. And it is used commonly in the Gospels. And I don't recall it being used in any of the writings. That is the uh, epistles or, or letters, but it is used commonly uh, to mean teacher. All right, uh, it did not get into Jewish writing until even much later because it was considered uh, a rather soft uh, sacred title and to be used sparingly among the people. But no, you will not see the word rabbi in any of the Old Testament the same way as the word Jew is not used in the Old Testament. Yes. Who wrote the how, how did it come about Was it written by the people in these groups that got together? It started uh yes. The the question here is who wrote the Talmud? Uh there's a lot of uh uh discussion about who wrote the Talmud and no one has Actually come forth as saying that he is the writer. It is a collection of writings. It is a collection of the laws that came along long after Babylon. Uh, it was part of, it started in Babylon in a, in a verbal way. It was not actually written down until around the fourth century AD. Uh, and it was a collection of all of the writings. And the commentaries. So the Talmud. Is about this long. If you put it all together. You know. Uh, people used to talk about the encyclopedia. Britannica. Being you know. Books that would take up a whole shelf. Talmud would be even larger. Because. It is made up of two two main parts. Uh, the Mishnah. And the Jumara. Both of which are sort of a combination of our catechism and commentary. But it's also listing all of the 613 laws uh, that the Jewish people say that they observe. Uh, I've told you this story many times. I had a very good uh, Jewish friend, neighbor, uh, and we would uh, have each other over to our houses quite often and one time I said to I said to the lady I said, "Kiki, why uh, uh why are you serving ham there? You're not supposed to, are you?" She says, "That's not pork. That's ham." <laughs> you see, and of course she was you know she was being funny, uh, but that's because you know a lot of the laws that they use or say that they observe. Uh, really they don't. You know, because some of them are so unrealistic, like, you know, the lady that came over and asked my wife to light the fire on Sunday. That is one of the 613 laws. Uh, another one, for example, is that you cannot walk any further, and you cannot drive on the Sabbath, and you cannot walk any further but from your house to the synagogue. So, Supposing you live way out in the country, <laughs> then you're going to make you're going to find some other excuse as to why you can't go. Say, uh, no. Well, why is it they want your food to be kosher? Kosher means it was blessed by a rabbi. All right. That's all. All right. Now you have other rules. Such as you cannot cook meat with a dairy product. Uh, Why do they have two refrigerators? Two refrigerators. Well, not, only, not always two refrigerators, but separate pots and pans and dishes for certain meals. For example, the Seder meal, uh, which is always on the eve of Passover, uh, must be in a separate... A set of dishes and pots and pans to prepare it that you do not use for anything else. So they always have, you know, something set aside. Yes, Rita? I and I Uh huh. I it, I had to put the dishes <laughs> back into the cupboard. Holy yes. So yes. Yeah. If no, you didn't hear that, Rita said when she was visiting, she took the dishes of this Jewish family that she was staying with and set the table thinking that she was helping them out. And when they came home, they made her put all the dishes back because they were the ones that were used for the Seder. And, and, and that's, that's how strict some of them are. Uh, but they seem to be dwindling. yeah. And again, it's so much formality. Uh, I'm not trying to dishonor any of the Jewish people. I have some very good Jewish friends, uh, and I'm not trying to put them down in any way, shape, or form. But their uh, observance of their relationship with God is pretty thin. Yeah. And so much of it is just formality and not a true relationship. But aren't we Americans and Christians of all over the world getting so wound up in uh, technology today that we seem to have no time for God? Uh, even as I think I've mentioned before, I have a Wonderful granddaughter and, and her husband. Wonderful people. They have two beautiful children, my great-grandsons. Uh, and they're so involved with every sport imaginable, imaginable for their kids, and they both have uh, jobs. He has his own business, and she has a very important executive job, uh, that they seem to have very little time. Luckily, they do go, do go to the Catholic Church up in Auburn, and they do observe all of their faith, but I think it is rather slim. Uh, but I you know, I pray for them all the time that they will be more involved, But they are involved at least sincerely, and that's what's important. Okay. Any other questions? My goodness, I can't let you go. I mean, this is just way, way, way too early. Yeah. If I could get you to speculate, do you suppose that, uh, you know, when you talked about, uh, your friend who said, that's not, uh, fork, that's ham. Yeah. So, if, if a, if a Jewish person who really probably maybe not didn't ever know either, that's what they brought up, we brought up in, if they observe these with the, you know, you talked about intent, do you suppose that that would be pleasing to God, perhaps? Yes, to, you know, I think so. Annoying. Yeah, yeah. The, the question is, if they observe their laws for the purpose of truly worshiping God, will God accept that? And the answer is yes. know, well, Just because we are Catholics, that doesn't mean that we're all guaranteed to go to heaven. No way. You have got And I think one of the things that we've got to learn here is the importance of fidelity and obedience to the teachings of God through the church. A lot of people say, well, I don't like the church telling me what to do. Well, the church is the extension of God. The church, we, not just the building, but we are the church. We happen to have some very important and capable people leading us. The Magisterium, yes, and, you know, the Pope and the Cardinals and so forth and so on. We have to not only listen to them, but we have to listen to our own conscience. We have to understand why we do what we do. That is part of our faith. Just observing rules and regulations is not sufficient. And it's a chore. It's boring. Pardon the expression, but it is. If you just do things out of rote, because so-and-so tells you, it's boring. But if you understand why you do things, it becomes beautiful. It becomes very reassuring. And I think we all want to be reassured in one way or another. And when I sit down in the morning and pray, I feel that God is there with me. And that is not just I'm reading prayers. I'm communicating with Him. And I think that From that, I'm getting this sense of peace that I want to share with all of you. I'm not taking it to polish my halo. I I know. Oh, there's a dirty spot. (laughs) No, it's because I feel so at peace that I want to share it with you. And that's why I do what I do. And I'm hoping that you will join me in doing the same thing. Spend some time each day With the Lord. Opening up your mind and your heart. If it helps to start by reading a few prayers. And I recommend the Psalms. It's interesting that Catholics. Or Christians in general. Make more use of the Psalms. Than the Jewish people do. And yet that's where they came from. And the Proverbs. And all of the writings. That's why for next week. I would like you to read uh, chapter 40 through 55 of Isaiah, the prophet. And read again. Chapter 3 of the book of Daniel. Now. And I would like to just have you flip through. And look over the books of. The first and second books of Maccabees. Because a lot of the readings there. Will help you to understand how God has tried to work with the Jewish people to see his point of view. Not just to okay their point. And yet, that's the way they interpreted. Everything was done according to their will. And that is what happened when they left Babylon. Boy, we're going to go home and we're going to do what the book of Deuteronomy tells us. Well, you know, they went from one extreme of serious sin to another extreme of fulfilling rules and regulations simply because they felt by doing, filling the, fulfilling those rules and regulations that they were honoring God and worshiping God. Well, that is not the case. If your intent is not to worship, but just to fulfill a rule or a regulation or a law of some kind, and there's no connection with God at all, it's not bringing you closer to him, then it's not doing you any good either. And God is not going to accept that. He's a very patient God. He's trying over and over and over, just wiping people out, is not going to do anybody any good. Particularly, it's not going to do him any good. He's wiping out his own creation. So, what's going to happen, and we'll see this next week, why and how did Judaism and Christianity go off in different directions and become so different? We've seen already one thing Have you ever thought about or tried to understand why Rome is so important to Catholics? Anyone? That's where the Vatican is, yes, but why is it there? All right. Anybody know why everything is in Rome? St. Peter and Paul were martyred in Rome. That's true, but why? Have you ever learned why did Peter go to Rome in the first place? We know how Paul got there, but how did how and why did Peter go there? You what? Tell us. Tell us. <laughs> before Catholicism, before Catholicism started. Well, no, not exactly. Catholicism started in Jerusalem. Okay? Remember, Jerusalem was originally the focal point of Judaism. And that was done by King David. The church has moved, the Catholic church has moved the center of Christianity and Catholicism to Rome Because of another king. Constantine. Constantine. Was. The king of the Roman Empire. In the early part of the 4th century. He was converted through the prayers of his mother. St. Helena. He was the one who. uh, did away with crucifixion and persecution of Christians and people of all faith, not just Christians, but he allowed all people to express their own faith without interference. He then built the first major cathedral in Catholicism, and for those of you who have been to church today, we celebrate the building of that particular church, St. John Lateran. Anyone know why the Vatican is called Vatican? You've all heard of the Seven Hills of Rome. Vatican was one of them. And it happened to be where St. Paul was martyred. His bones were discovered centuries later, buried deep below that hill. But the Vatican, uh rather St. Peter's, was built on Vatican Hill. St. John Lateran is called that because Lateran was another of the hills. These were families way back with very important uh, backgrounds. Yeah. But it was Constantine who did a great deal of good for the church. He was the one that transferred the uh, worship on the Sabbath to Sunday in honor of Christ's resurrection and the descent of the Holy Spirit, both being on Sunday. It was not the church that made that change. It was Constantine. And he did a number of other things. He supported the church and encouraged it after he became a Catholic or a Christian. Uh, it's interesting. He didn't want to be baptized, though, until he was near death because he was afraid he might commit a sin in between. <laughs> 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 Which is kind of foolish in a way, but that that was his way of doing things. Uh, uh, the whole life uh, of Constantine is, is very interesting. Was, was he in Constantinople first and then moved? To no, his father was. Oh, his father. Was. Yes. What yes. name was named Constantine? Constantius was his father. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Uh, okay. Any other? Food, uh, any other questions? <laughs> Yes. yes. And we, I mean, I, it just kicked me away and I was like in tears and we went out to, she goes, I'm just so mad at uh, Mel Gibson. He said, I've got torture part of the movie and I just couldn't stand it and you know, all that suffering. She, she's a nurse. So she's saying, I've seen so much worse suffering and it was like, just, she was angry at the movie, just totally angry. And, and it was, you know, and it kind of got me because it just, Yes. you know yes. and I thought why are we seeing this different well un- unfortunately you have a number of, of people that grew up with their own idea mm-hmm. of Christ's passion, death and resurrection and they didn't look at what really happened or why. Yeah. You have the same problem with the, the average crucifix if you go into our church here you see this beautiful crucifix of Christ up there, and it looks like he just came out of a shower and got up on the cross, you know. Uh, no way. A person that is beaten and clubbed and chained and spit upon and so forth and so on is not going to look pretty. But have you ever seen a cross that looks like that? Yes. Very, very seldom, though. Oh, yeah. Oh, the cathedral there. Yes. And it horrible and horrible. Yes. That's right. Yes. We like to think of our our God as nice and clean and never got dirty and so forth. But you know, if you travel around in clothes uh, that are never washed except once or twice a year, uh, it's not going to be pretty and the crucifixion was not meant to be pretty it was suffering I've had people say well he was God he couldn't have hurt him (laughs) that uh, that negates the whole purpose he suffered out of love for us he suffered because he was a human being as well as God and it was the human being that suffered for the sake of all mankind so you can't ignore it or wish it wasn't there. So when you pray, and I hope you will all spend some time in prayer, the amount of time is not important. You don't get more credits for staying longer. Lord, I've got another half hour, you know. Uh, no, it's, that's not important. It's the quality of your prayer, the sincerity. Uh, Any other questions? Now let's end with one of those prayers. In the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for all of these weeks that we have come together to understand where Catholicism came from. And next week, we hope to put it together in such a way so we can see What happened with the Jewish people did not pick up on the same ideas. So help us then to open our minds and our hearts to what it is you want us to hear. What it is you want us to do for you through the church. Help us then to know what our part in your plan of salvation is. So that we might fulfill it with fidelity and obedience. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things. Amen.